Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. If you're like me, it can be pretty easy these days to get completely distracted by the national news. There's a lot happening at the state level, including a lot of fights that really go directly to this question of who makes decisions, who's in charge, what's the nature of democracy in the context of really powerful corporations. Uh, Do we govern companies or do they govern us? Those are some of the themes that we're going to talk about on this episode of Building Local Power. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues here at the Institute. John Farrell is director of our Energy Democracy Program. Hey, John. Hello. John is joining us from Cancun, Mexico, uh, because, oh, poor thing, his flight was canceled on the way home from vacation. So his internet connection may be a little wonky, but we'll see how it goes. And we're also joined by Christopher Mitchell in our Minneapolis office. Uh, I always like to introduce Chris by first saying he's no relation of mine, uh, and he also directs the Institute's community broadband program. Welcome, Chris. Hi, it's a pleasure to be talking to you from my snow cave in lovely Minneapolis, uh, near where John is uh, avoiding doing his own shoveling, I'm sure. (laughs) I'd like to clarify, too, that I am also no relation of Chris Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, John, let me start with you. There are a lot of uh, fights going on in a number of states around nuclear power, and we have some big incumbent utilities that are really pushing this agenda to continue using their nuclear power plants and to be able to foist a really high cost for that onto ratepayers. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on? I think what was really important as background to understand in our electricity system is that in a lot of states, this is not a competitive market. In fact, it's deliberately not one. We have 30 states where the utility company that serves a particular city is the only utility company allowed to serve that city. So we've given them a monopoly. And in exchange for that, they've agreed to fall under public oversight. And what's happened, unfortunately, is that utility companies in many cases uh, are private corporations. So they have their own interest uh, for their shareholders. And that's a tension sometimes with the public interest. And it means that they sometimes like to go around that public oversight. So there are these state commissions, these state regulators, overseeing these nuclear power plants that were built at great expense many years ago, but have been operating for a very long time. Uh, There's a lot of new competition in the market from solar and wind energy and other cheaper sources of electricity, uh, as well as from natural gas. And these power plants are increasingly expensive to run, but they're owned by utilities that don't generally have competition but are now starting to feel that from other power producers where there is some competition up at the wholesale level. And so what's happened is in a number of states, you have utilities going to the legislature where they have a lot of power through their lobbyists, where they can spend a significant amount of money, whether that's through campaign contributions uh, or in, in terms of the lobbyists that they have or in terms of the literature that they can produce and send to lawmakers. Uh, they'll draft legislation. They'll get lawmakers who often have a much a weaker understanding of energy policy than the state regulators uh, to push bills for them. And, and what this has meant in a number of states is subsidies, uh, operating subsidies to keep nuclear power plants afloat. And what's frustrating about it in particular is that it, there's a, a tension, I think, among a lot of folks in the energy space around this, because, of course, nuclear power plants, when they generate electricity, don't generate any carbon. And, and there are a lot of folks obviously very concerned about reducing carbon dioxide emissions. And I think some willingness to talk about how do we find the way to get to the lowest carbon in our electricity system. But our renewable energy is really, really cheap right now. And so the danger that we're in is that if we throw a bunch of money at these aging legacy nuclear power plants, we may not be successful at 
finding the lowest and cheapest cost way to reduce carbon emissions. So how is this actually playing out in some states? You've written some about Minnesota and what you've described as a a blank check that the big power utility there is looking for. Can you tell us what that is? So there's a bill in the Minnesota legislature. It's already passed a Senate committee. It's got a House hearing the week of April 16th. And it's uh, essentially is a blank check. What it does is it gives them advanced approval for the costs to keep their nuclear power plants operating for about another 10 years. Um, Normally, there would be a process where the public regulators would get to review how how much the utility has spent after the fact and say, you know, number one, is it prudent? Did you spend it appropriately? And number two, is that cost then allowed to be passed on to customers? And the last time this happened, the last time Excel Energy in Minnesota, the biggest uh, investor-owned, shareholder-owned company, did this process for a nuclear power plant, they went horribly over budget. About $750 million was spent on a $300 million budget. Uh, the public regulators determined that much of that spending was not prudent, that it had been ho- the retrofit process had been mismanaged, and they did not allow the utility company to get make a profit on the money that it recovered from customers. So customers still had to foot the bill. We still suffered from that mismanagement, but we uh, the utility company didn't get rewarded for mismanaging that process. This bill throws all that out the window. It essentially says whatever we spend on a nuclear power plant is prudent simply because the bill says it's prudent. And it means that they'll be able to recover all the costs they are, no matter what they are, and that they'll make make sure that the shareholders are kept whole and make a profit. And so it's a a terrible bill from the standpoint of holding the utility accountable uh, for costs. And it's a terrible bill for consumers because it essentially says shareholders first, customers last. It's really striking because it seems like it's in the weeds. And so how much people are really paying attention to this. And then the fact that it also seems on its face somewhat logical that we'll come to you before we spend the money as opposed to after we've spent the money. And yet it really does something different. It really puts the utility in charge of deciding if those investments are are right. Is, is that the way to understand it? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think even more than that, there, you know, there's two problems. One is that the legislators simply don't even understand the process well enough to understand what the utility is doing. I mean, they look at the bill and the bill says, hey, a nuclear power plant is getting a fancy name called a carbon reduction facility, which the utility simply made up out of whole cloth. Uh, It says, oh, the Public Utilities Commission is listed in the bill in a number of places as though it will have a real role in the process. Uh, Even though it's after the fact, it will be able to say, yes, you can recover all the costs that you said you were going to incur and we have no way to stop you from doing that. Um, so it's, it doesn't seem like it's doing anything significant. And that's why uh, it's been a, a challenge to be clear with legislators in particular about what this means. That's why that term blank check is so important, is because it, it really helps give a visual to lawmakers about what the bill does, given that it gets into these technical weeds that are they're challenging to understand for anybody. Uh, But a legislator who's juggling a lot of different policy areas, uh, it's very difficult for them to wrap their heads around what's happening. I actually think the term blank check doesn't nearly go far enough. It's more like a blank check book. Uh, They don't have the ability just to write one check to themselves. They can just come up with any number of systems that they want to gold plate or screw up and come back and redo over and over and over again, it sounds like. I mean, it seems like an unlimited number of blank checks over the next several years. No, it's true. We really have no idea how much money it's going to be. You know, they've hinted at something like $1.5 billion as their upfront estimate. If it's as off as their last estimate was, then and it means, of course, that we've got a bill northward of $3 billion coming to 
customers of Excel Energy in Minnesota. It's a very dangerous precedent, not only in terms of undermining the regulatory process where the experts at the Public Utilities Commission are already have a way to check the utility and make sure that these costs are done prudently, but, but that the utility already has a way to make sure that these power plants could keep running. I mean, they're still a monopoly. They're st they can still run these power plants if they need to. They simply have to make sure they spend the money appropriately. And so it's, I think, very, very ballsy, for lack of a better term, that the utility company is coming and essentially saying, we can already do what we want to do as far as the power plants are concerned. We can keep them running. We can keep them operating. We can retrofit them as necessary. But what we really need to change about the process is make sure that our shareholders can make money off of every dime we spend, regardless of whether or not we manage the process well. And this isn't the only bill that Excel is pushing in the legislature. They've also, as I understand it, got another bill that's even in some ways, the language is much more subtle, um, and yet would, could potentially have really far-reaching implications on their competition from community-owned solar. Talk about what's in that bill and what it would mean if it, if it were to go through. It's draft legislation. I want to be clear. That one has not been introduced. It was circulated by their lobbyists to a number of advocacy organizations um, and would do a number of things, but primarily undermine the most successful community solar program in the country. So community solar is a way that people can, you know, if they don't have a sunny rooftop uh, or they want to just own a little bit of solar but not a lot because they don't have a lot of money, that, you know, you could put a solar panel on a local cooperative grocery store, uh, a local cooperative grocery store, you could put it on a church, and, and folks could own, you know, a couple of panels that could help offset their electricity use. And Minnesota's program has over 300 megawatts. It's enough to power uh, something like 60,000 homes. And the bill that Excel lobbyists wrote and were preparing to introduce, I think, if they had the opportunity, would have essentially undermined the entire program. Uh, by removing the authority of the public regulators to ensure that the program structure and the payments to customers were sufficient to allow projects to be developed. It was really the core piece of the program, the core element of the intent of the law when the legislators wrote it was, we want to make sure this stuff happens uh, and that these opportunities are presented to customers across uh, the entire service territory of the company. So, uh, it's kind of a one-two punch. It's a, you know, both of us are in favor of shareholders. Uh, one is a gut punch to customers in the way that the Excel spends money on the power plants they operate. And then the other one is saying, we're going to reduce the kind of choices that you have to reduce your energy consumption or to produce your own energy uh, at the same time. I mean, Excel really seems like a, a company that has gotten in the habit of thinking that it writes the rules, that it's in charge, that it governs us. And, and you know, this isn't, just playing out in Minnesota, you know, my understanding is that this is happening in other states, too, where we've got other electric utility monopolies that are, you know, at the precipice here of, of this world where we might have more competition, where we might have people being able to produce their own power, where we might have renewables. Um, they're really stepping in and, you know, acting as though it's, it's their decision and their um, uh, power to sort of say what the future should should hold, and one, of course, in which they continue to be central. What's what's happening on this front in some of the other states? So you've got legislation in Ohio. That one is still under debate. Um, you have deals that have been cut in Illinois and in New York to keep nu nuclear plants operating. 
um, and some of which lack some of those fiscal safeguards that we think are important for customers. Um, probably the most insidious other example, though, is down in South Carolina. This is one of a handful of states uh, that the, the Post and Courier newspaper called out the utilities for what I'd love to directly quote, a bonfire of risky spending on nuclear power plants and other large-scale power plants that have since failed. And so there's been a lot of scrutiny of the utility there um, in South Carolina, uh, a lot of uh, effort made on the behalf of customers there to try to recover some of those costs. Right now, every customer, uh, on average, every month is paying $27 for a failed power plant that will never produce a single kilowatt hour. So there was a bill being pushed through in order to increase access to solar energy to give customers more choices about how they could cut their energy costs since the utility had made this horrible bet with their customers' money. And uh, the bill was going through. It had a majority in a very conservative legislature uh, to support solar energy. Uh, it was very exciting. Um, but one of the legislators who has received almost $70,000 in campaign contributions from electric utilities in the last decade successfully threw in a technicality that made the legislation require a two-thirds majority to pass, and so the bill failed. Um, and again, this is in a state where there has been a lot of scrutiny of utilities for doing horrible things, horribly mismanaging customer money, costing customers enormous amount of money, and yet they still wield this outsized influence when it comes to the way that customers can have choices over where their energy comes from and, and controlling their energy costs. You're listening to Building Local Power. I'm Stacey Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. This is the part of most podcasts when you'd hear an ad for, say, a home meal delivery service or maybe an online mattress company. Uh, we don't take ads here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, but we do ask that you please consider supporting our work. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, keeping it ad-free, but it also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the ways that we actually help local citizens and policymakers build local power in their communities. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. Scroll down about halfway down the page and click on the donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you can do is to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Rating helps us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. Thanks. Chris, this is, you know, sort of similar to what I know we've been seeing with internet service providers, you know, these incumbent ISPs have really been for years guiding what states do and sort of using that influence that they have at the state level uh, to make sure the game is rigged in, in their favor. Um, but you say that this is beginning to loosen up, that in fact, some states are starting to get wiser to this and to push back a little bit. What's happening? Well, there is definitely hope. I definitely welcome John to correct me if he thinks I'm wrong. But to set the stage, it's worth noting that you know, in broadband and telecommunications, uh, we face a, a similar landscape in some ways, but different in other ways, in that every state has big cable and incumbent telephone companies that are very powerful at the legislature, in part because they operate in every single district. Um, they have a lot of money and influence uh, with the legislature 
legislators. Um, but whereas John typically is working, you know, in coordination with other groups, some conservative, many more on the left, there's green power groups, there's environmental groups in every state. Most states don't have anyone really working on telecom issues, except for maybe New York and California, where they are still significantly outgunned. Um, and so the big cable and telephone companies have had success after success in state legislatures of, of shaping legislation. But but like you said, it's starting to change. Um, we're seeing states resisting that siren call of the monopolies in, in important ways. One of them is just the uh, the, the net neutrality. Um, seeing after the Federal Communications Commission repealed net neutrality uh, last December, we saw a lot of states considering it, and we've already seen three states take executive action uh, to uh, try to recover net neutrality protections in their states to at least a limited extent. And we saw uh, the states of Oregon and Washington actually moving bills through the normal process signed by the governors uh, to formally reinstate net neutrality protections, again, one way or another. And in California, there's a very strong movement to uh, do a similar thing that's not yet uh, finished on net neutrality. On the question of net neutrality, do states have like the full authority to restore net neutrality? Is there, you know, if all 50 states did this, would we be okay without the federal government doing so? It's a really good question that nobody can answer, but lawyers are making a lot of money trying to predict um, because this is an interstate commerce issue. That doesn't automatically mean states cannot regulate it, but it does mean that the courts get to decide where and when and how and those sorts of things. Uh, we do think that the states that are tying net neutrality protections to procurement, that will succeed. Uh, I don't think many of us think that would be rolled back. And that's a situation where if you're in New York, New Jersey, Montana, or Oregon now, if you're a company that does business with the state, if you're getting state contracts, you have to run your network in adherence with the rules that uh, the, the Wheeler FCC had instituted in 2015, the rules that were repealed in, in 2017 by the Trump administration. Um, we think those will stand. In Washington and what California is contemplating, those will also be challenged very strongly by the FCC and, and probably the um, ISPs to the extent you can distinguish the big monopolies from the FCC in the current administration. Um, and many of us think that that will also be found to be okay. Uh, but you, it's hard to say with the courts in the shape that they are, given um, just how pro-corporate they are from, um, you know, from the district level to the Supreme Court. It seems like this uh, this push by states around net neutrality is part of them kind of finding their sea legs when it comes to not just rolling over and doing whatever the ISPs want them to do. Um, there's some other examples, as I understand, that are starting to happen where states are also, um, you know, insisting that that ISPs don't have the kind of power to completely control outcomes in the market. What else are you seeing? It is worth saying that many of us were skeptical as to how far the states would go and how quickly. 
in part, that's because of our reaction from the privacy situation, which was that one of the first things that the current Congress did when the Republicans uh, fully took over with Trump as president was to trample on our privacy rights. Um, the Again, the Wheeler um, Federal Communications Commission under Obama protected our privacy, so our ISPs couldn't just go and sell our information, um, or at the very least, they'd have to get our permission first. Um, but we have lost that once again. Um, and when that happened, states actually very commonly, I mean, Minnesota was one of them, rushed um, in, in 2017 to pass their own privacy uh, regulations. And the ISP stopped all that. And so many of us thought states would make a lot of noise about net neutrality, but maybe the, the companies, the big monopolies would stop them from doing anything. But they haven't. And one of the things that, that shocked us was when um, West Virginia, a state that had long been, I would say, controlled by the incumbent telephone company, um, I believe it was last year, they passed a bill that Frontier, which is a big telephone company there, uh, opposed. And our, our jaws dropped because we hadn't really seen that happen before. And now more recently, Colorado basically told CenturyLink, hey, we don't work for you. We work for the people of the state. Um, and specifically, what, what Colorado has done was, was weaken what we call the right of first refusal. The right of first refusal is, is one of these monopoly protection tactics that the incumbents write into broadband subsidy bills to make sure that the government cannot encourage competition anywhere. Um, you know, God forbid that a, that a government in the United States would somehow try to encourage the federal policy of competition. In Colorado specifically, now, if an incumbent wants to exercise the right of first refusal, they actually have to build a network as good as the proposed network that they're stopping. So if Colorado was going to subsidize a new network in, say, Ridgeway, uh, Colorado, which is in the mountains, and where, Col where CenturyLink stopped a gigabit network from being deployed and is rolling out a much slower network. If they were to try to do that today, CenturyLink would have to deploy a network that was offering high-quality gigabit speeds at a similar cost to what the new provider was proposing. That's some pretty good teeth, and that's a right of first refusal we can live with, although it's still really annoying. Tell us more about this case in Ridgeway, Colorado, because there's a there's a we've got an article up on our website uh, now about this, and you know it was really uh, shocking for me to read because you had this uh, was it a local company or a local organization that was going to come into a community that really had been left behind. I mean that that CenturyLink had kind of brushed past and didn't really seem to want a service, and so someone else came along that wanted to do uh, high quality fiber network in this region. Uh, what happened? Yeah, it's exactly as you describe it. Uh, an ISP that had experience in nearby areas wanted to expand its connections. The local folks were really thrilled. That's a very high-cost area, so the state has a subsidy program. And like you said, CenturyLink wasn't providing very much at all in that community. They had, I don't know, 20 years to make investments, and they hadn't done it. Um, so anyone who might think it's unfair that a, a state would subsidize a, a new entrant into an area where an incumbent is totally ignoring it's its customers um i don't i don't find much persuasion there but 
the they went for they applied for this uh, grant program and CenturyLink challenged it and unfortunately the lack of technical sophistication among the people that were making these decisions led them to give the money to CenturyLink instead I don't believe CenturyLink got all of the money uh, but CenturyLink got a chunk of money then from the state to do a network that was inferior to what the the company that was going to serve the community of Ridgeway uh, was going to build. Um, that led to a podcast, actually, that we did on the Community Broadband Bits podcast uh, last year, I believe, uh, with a guy named Doug Seacat, who is running that process. And for people who'd like more information, I definitely recommend checking out that interview or transcript. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that up on the show page for this episode so people can find out more uh, about that. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of struck with both of you and, and what's happening in both of these sectors by the fact that, you know, we tend to assume that markets are somewhat competitive and it, the ways in which these sort of monopolies or these incumbent providers exercise their power is often subtle. It's often sort of in the weeds, but it has these really profound effects on what comes to play. I, I'm trying not to dial up my outrage meter too much, but let's remember that in both the electricity infrastructure and the telecommunications infrastructure, we're talking about public infrastructure. We paid for it, right? This is not a situation in which a company, I, I, for whatever reason, I always come to Apple with this, you know, developed this cutting edge new product. They, they took risk. They borrowed money from shareholders to be able to do it. You know, to some extent, the companies that we're dealing with borrowed money, but they did it in a monopoly environment. The cable companies have monopoly franchises for decades in most areas. The telephone companies have monopoly service territories in which they built this infrastructure with our money and they made a profit on it, right? The electricity infrastructure, much the same. This is all our money. And now we're fighting over, over these different issues as though these companies somehow would be, it would be unfair because of all of the risks they took, all the, you know, the incredible decisions that they made to win in the market. We're trying to establish a market and we're being stopped from doing so by incumbents that desperately want to preserve their lack of competition, their, their monopoly power. And, and it's worth remembering, we built this, all this infrastructure with our money. I think that's a great point. Uh, John, do you want to jump in? I think that is really the crux of the issue in the electricity sector as well, is that we're not talking about a situation in which uh, the financial risk is actually being borne by the incumbent because of the monopoly protection that they enjoy. And whereas, for example, like with this solar bill in South Carolina, the people who are going to put solar on their roof and the solar companies that are going to install it are taking all the risk. It may not work out for them. It, it may end up that it's not going to save them as much money as they expect. There might be a fault with the solar array. They're taking a risk in order to have some choice and some freedom. And what the utility essentially is saying is you have no choice. You simply have to go with us. You have to take advantage of the electricity that we provide with your money based on the philosophy that we have. So I think it is a crucially important understanding of how our system works and that that's the importance of providing more choices and opportunities and, and making sure that the risks are borne fairly. It's a good point. It's, it's also true that this sort of, this whole issue really sort of speaks to kind of our core goals around, uh, you know, reclaiming democracy uh, and, and the power of people. I guess it's hard for me, like thinking about this, you know, issue of, of the relationship of companies to government, not to also, you know, turn back to the to the national front and f reflect a little bit on the 
hearings with Facebook this past week, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of the company in front of uh, uh, committees in both the House and the Senate. And, you know, what was striking to me, especially the, the first day in front of the Senate, was how much lawmakers just you know, would would ask Zuckerberg, like, would you support regulation? What kinds of regulation do you think there should be? And I just felt like sort of, you know, jumping up and down and saying, well, who cares what Mark Zuckerberg thinks about regulation and whether he should be regula- regulated or not? Um, you know, why is, why do, you know, why is he deciding? Why does he have any authority over this or any influence uh, compared to anyone else? Um, so I don't know, I'm curious what other kinds of takeaways you guys had uh, from, from those hearings. My overwhelming takeaway, first of all, is that it was uh, an embarrassment, I thought, in that uh, many conflicting feelings. One of them was that when you had Congress berating um, Zuckerberg, uh, in part for taking advantage of the lack of rules that we had set up. I mean, it's been obvious that privacy would be an issue for a long time. There are groups in D.C. that do really good work on on how to thread the needle between protecting privacy and not stifling innovation. Um, so there's ideas out there, and Congress has utterly refused to engage with them. So um, to some extent, there's a. it's not like Facebook got into this position without a failure at Congress. Um, but the, the observation I wanted to just throw out there is that um, P- Marsha Blackburn, representative from Tennessee, got a lot of credit for being really tough on Facebook and apparently being very well prepared. That didn't surprise some of us because right now the big telephone companies like AT&T are working very hard to try to punish Facebook and try to lock Facebook and Google away because they are threatened by Facebook and Google. Marsha Blackburn has basically been a representative from AT&T, long neglecting her residents and constituents in Tennessee. And so I have no doubt that AT&T prepared her very well to be able to uh, go up against Zuckerberg. And I didn't see even the tech writers for the most part getting that. Although I think, you know, some of the folks like Carl Bode at DSL Reports and others that actually uh, aren't as well read, they're not in the New York Times, uh, but they're the ones you should be reading on these matters um, because they, they pick up on that. That's interesting. It's you could, it's so easy to miss those behind the scenes corporations up against one another and, you know, ultimately not necessarily working out to serve our interests. John, what did you think about the hearings? I mean, I think it is an unfortunate amount of theater, as you highlighted, Stacy, when lawmakers are asking for the next step from the company that caused the problem, then the whole situation is backwards. You just have to ask yourself, like, what is it that causes this problem? And it is the fact that one company has such a valuable store of data because they have such a concentration of power over the social media market and all of this data from customers that is accessible and worth mining into. I mean, it's like the same reason why people don't dive through garbage cans and recycling bins for your information anymore. I mean, shredding your data and your checks or something like that is pointless because people are going to steal your data online. It's easier. And people are going to do it from the places that have registrations in the millions because they're going to get more for their dollar by doing it. We talk about this issue of economies of scale a lot in our work in particular around the uh, elements of production in our society. So whether that's in energy, the size and scale of energy production, or in the authority over the system, whether it should be controlled at a local or a national level. And to me, that just highlights this issue that when you allow any kind of company, but especially a company that is essentially an information and advertising company that has a face as a social media company, have this economy of scale such that they control so much of the nation's 
uh, conversation, as was an issue back in the election, but also so much of the nation's information about its people, of course you're going to have this problem. And of course they're going to be a target because they're such a juicy target. And so the idea that A, lawmakers are asking for assistance from Facebook and figuring out what to do is crazy, but also ignores the whole problem, which is Facebook being big is the problem. I think that's right. And, you know, I didn't get to watch all the hearings by any means. I think it was sort of 10 hours total. But, you know, there was both like this sort of theater of the whole thing that that can create this sense that, you know, something is happening, something is being done, when in fact, nothing has happened. And it's not clear that anything is going to be done. Um, and so it creates this kind of false sense that, you know, this company's under scrutiny, and, and you know, there's stuff happening uh, with legislation, when in fact, there isn't anything at this point happening with legislation. And I didn't see it all. But I, I don't, you know, I didn't hear anything about, you know, really structural solutions, like what about the idea of Facebook having to, you know, spin off Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, I mean, they, they were allowed to acquire those companies, companies and probably shouldn't have been. Um, so what about the idea of making them spend those companies off, breaking them breaking them up, and also prohibiting Facebook from any new acquisitions, uh, you know, for the for the coming years, you know, those kinds of structural issues, um, you know, ways in which we could make their algorithms accountable and sort of much more transparent. Um, you know, the idea of, of um, you know, you being able to port your data to other places. I mean, there are things that, that are being discussed that are much more fundamental. The idea of, of actually making Facebook spin off its ad network. And so, you know, it is a social uh, media uh, platform and it is an ad company become two separate things. Now, that's a structural solution that it seems to me starts to really get at the problem at the heart of their power and the heart of their business model. And yet, my sense is that, you know, with, you know, AT&T whispering in one ear and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Google whispering in the other, that lawmakers are maybe going to land on some uh, modest reforms around privacy, but not really get to the heart of any of those things, um, which is a little depressing. But then I guess, you know, we did have the hearings. <laughs> I have found myself at a dead end with this comment. I think you've hit the nail on the head, though, Stacey, which is that action will be shown through either you know, a regulatory process that's taken up if there was, you know, an FCC process that could intervene or if there was a piece of legislation in the same way that you see stuff happening, you know, like Chris was mentioning about states taking action on broadband, you know, if, if there's not actual bill language out there, then what's happening is just theater. And it might be important theater for raising people's consciousness about what's going on, but I, I find it frustrating when you have lawmakers who have such a limited understanding of the issues, they want their five minutes of fame on television asking a tough question of Mark Zuckerberg that they can use in a campaign ad or something is what I feel like, rather than them thinking seriously about what's a solution to this problem that really is a serious issue for not only the security of the data of our, my constituents, but also national security, as was so prominently highlighted with the spread of fake news on Facebook's platform back in 2016. I would echo that, John. And I would say that one thing that we should do about it would, would be to go back to having, again, having states take a strong action in this. And there are some states that are moving forward uh, with trying to protect privacy and set some, some good rules. And Facebook is fighting them very hard in the state legislatures. Um, and we'll, we'll undoubtedly have to deal with this question of whether it's okay to have a 
patchwork of regulations, you know, as though a company like Facebook that hires thousands of people just to do like one task, like filtering out uh, certain kinds of content or looking for hate speech, uh, as though somehow complying with 50 different rules would be that difficult for them to set up automated systems to do. But it is, uh, it is probably going to be more effective in the shorter term than waiting for Congress to do something while they're waiting for Mark to give them approval for it. Well, it's a good lesson about the importance of paying attention to states and being active at the state level, right? Because, you know, I mean, it's, as, I, as I said at the top of this show, it's so easy, especially now, to get completely distracted by all the things that are going on at the federal level. Um, and yet we have this power locally and at the state level that, you know, that could be the pathway that we actually begin to solve some of these issues. So thank you both so much for joining me today for this conversation. And thank you all for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. The show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer, the theme music Music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Mm-hmm.